Thank you so much, Michael and Anne. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, great. Do open your Bible back to Psalm 3. We'll be there today. And uh, this is the one time I've actually got some photos to show on the screen. And it's the one time I've given my headings to the guys in advance. And it's the one time half the screens are down. There you go. So apologies. Anyway. Um, by May 1940, the six-week Battle of France had come to an end. German troops had outnumbered, outgunned, and outclassed the French, Belgian, and British armies. It was carnage. In the House of Commons, Prime Minister Winston Churchill called it a colossal military disaster. He said, the whole root and core and brain of the British army had been stranded at Dunkirk and seemed about to perish or be captured. Desperate times. You can see there a photo actual photograph of thousands of men lining the beach at Dunkirk. A powerful recent film called Dunkirk begins with the scene of young soldiers stumbling through the deserted streets of a French town and propaganda leaflets rain down from the sky that have been dropped on them by planes. And one of them picks up a leaflet, and as he looks at it, he sees a map which shows their situation in vivid colors. They are completely surrounded and backed up against the sea. And the, the, the propaganda leaflet says, we surround you. It was designed to break their spirit. And the film brings up a black screen that says, the enemy have driven the British and French armies to the sea. Trapped at Dunkirk, they await their fate, hoping for deliverance, for a miracle. Where do we turn in desperate times? Now, the Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible. We have some young people with us today from the Fusion group. So good to have you. Fusion, look on your sheet there. Psalms are songs and poems. Songs and poems, and they are also a treasure trove of spiritual wisdom for the believer. We can learn so much from the Psalms. And one of the main things we learn from the Psalms is how to pray. How to pray. Everyone knows what it feels like to try and pray sometime. And there are times you just don't know what to say. How, how are we to pray? The disciples came to Jesus one time and asked that very question. Lord, Teach us to pray. Great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. And so we must learn to pray. The child learns to speak because his father speaks to him. He learns the speech of his father. So we learn to speak to God because God has spoken to us and speaks to us. By means of the speech of the father in heaven... His children learn to speak with him. Repeating God's own words after him, we begin to pray to him. We ought to speak to God, and he wants to hear us, not in the false and confused speech of our heart, but in the clear and pure speech which God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. And for the next three Sundays, we are learning how to pray with the Psalms, Psalms 3, 4, and 5. And this is, I actually think, really exciting because I believe this can fundamentally change the way we pray, Christian friends. Doing this can make our prayers real 
and meaningful in a way that they've never been before. They can, our prayers can come alive. Do you ever find prayer to be dry and difficult and maybe, if you're honest, boring? I invite you to come on this journey for the next three weeks and pray with the psalmist. And I think you may find it's a transforming journey. And today we start with Psalm 3, the Dunkirk of the Psalms. And we have four brief points. One, life is full of troubles. Two, some of them are your own making. (laughs) Three, you can trust God with everything. Four, so take it all to him. Life is full of troubles. Some of them are your own making. You can trust God with everything So take it all to him. Firstly, life is full of troubles. Look at verse 1. It bursts out. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Notice the repetition of many, many, many. This is is how he feels. There's so many people against me. I'm completely outnumbered. He feels he's in a minority. And that minority is shrinking. So much opposition, surrounded by enemies, people who don't like him. How do you feel when you know somebody really doesn't like you? There's an old pastor who used to talk to me and a friend of mine called Bobby Warrenberg. This pastor was from a church in Ipswich, Massachusetts. And he used to say this to us. A few, he said it quite a lot of times. He said, oh, my advice to you, you're going to be pastors is that some, somewhere out there, someone doesn't like me. And God knows about it. I don't think we enjoy being disliked, do we? What if someone really hates you and actually wants to make your life difficult? Ah, it feels so painful. People are talking about him. Look at verse 2. They're saying, a lot of people are talking about me, he says. And what are they saying? God won't deliver him. Who are these people? Well, obviously, it could be the enemies. That's what they're saying. He's he's through. He's finished. But it could also be faint-hearted friends. Friends who just go weak in in the hour of need. There are such friends. God bless them. And sometimes when you're in a real situation, your friends become weak. It almost feels worse than the enemies. In other words, everyone agrees that this man's situation is absolutely desperate. There is no one to help. It feels like even God has abandoned him. What emotions can you sense in this language here? Can you feel it? Isolation. Loneliness. Oppression. I'm outnumbered. I'm overwhelmed. Anxious. Tempted to give up tempted to despair. It's a nightmare. And this is what life can be like for a Christian believer. Do you know that? Some people think that becoming a Christian contains a promise of an easy life. There's a message sweeping all around the world that the gospel is a story of health, wealth, prosperity. But the reality of the Christian life is very different from that and may be the absolute opposite of that. It may be sickness, poverty, and loads of trouble. 
The Bible is consistent about that. So if you're in the fusion group, look at uh, question two there. Let me ask you, what things worry you guys and make you upset, you young people? What things worry you and make you upset? Life is full of troubles. And if you're feeling like this at the moment, friends, it is a horrible place to be. And sometimes it goes on for months and months. Some of us may be feeling these things right now. Let's be tender towards them. Others are not feeling these things right now, but you will at some point in your life. Job 5 verse 7 says, Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. Sparks fly up from a fire and sure enough trouble's coming. We need to understand that this is part of the normal spiritual experience of a Christian. It's not some catastrophic failure of the faith. If we expect a trouble-free life, if we think that we will go through the Christian life without struggle, we are destined for disappointment. The Bible never promises you that. But our hearts will be tempted to believe what the people say. God will not deliver him. Or another way of putting it, there is no help for you in God. Our hearts are tempted to believe that, especially in our secular culture, where everybody says there's no help for you in God. Life is full of troubles. And to add insult to injury, point two, some of them are our own making. Notice the title of the psalm. You look in your Bible there. You've got Psalm 3, and then in italic letters, you have a little notice of the author and the situation where it was written. A psalm of David, that's the author, and the context is when he fled from his son, Absalom. Now, this is very revealing because it comes from a specific time in history that we have a lot of information about. King David's life was full of ups and downs, but this time with his son Absalom was the worst time. It was the absolute lowest point of his life. And we read all about it in 2 Samuel, chapter 15 to 18. You can read that later. Let me give a very brief recap. Uh, Another one of David's sons, whose name was Amnon, fell in love with his sister. He became infatuated with her. Her name was Tamar. And in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we read he did something terrible to Tamar. And then afterwards, he hated her intensely. He hated her just as much as he had desired her before. And he ruined Tamar's life. Now, Absalom, her brother, heard about it, and he never said a word. But in his heart, he plotted vengeance for his sister, and he waited two years. And two years later, Absalom killed his own brother. Now, King David, who's the dad of all of them, heard about it, but he failed to take appropriate action. He was weak. He failed. Why? Part of the reason, I think, is that Absalom was his favored son. He just loved Absalom. He could forgive him for everything. He was obsessed with Absalom being, being, being there and being his son. And Absalom knew this weakness, and he began plotting again. This time, he plotted a military coup. He was going to take the throne from his own father, David. And he manipulated the people over a period of time by cunning words. He was a very good people person our Absalom. He was very charming. Actually, he was a very good-looking man. 
It says in the Bible that he stole the hearts of the people. Some, some people have got enough language skills that they can do this. They're emotionally manipulative. He stole their hearts secretly in the background, having conversations here and there. He, he eroded people's trust in the king, his father, so that he could take the throne. And by the time David realized what was going on, the conspiracy had gained great strength. 2 Samuel 15 verse 18 says, Absalom's following kept on increasing. Notice Psalm 3. Many rise up against me. And when Absalom finally made his move, David was reduced to nothing. All he had left was a few, a handful of loyal followers. And it says he walked up the Mount of Olives weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. An absolute shell of a man, wrecked and broken by this intimate betrayal of a favorite son. And the turning of all the people that David had served and rescued all those years, and now they turned against him. All his service was forgotten. Such ingratitude. And at this point, it got worse. Because an old enemy called Shimei chose this very moment to put the boot in. He comes out and he points out that David's own failures had created this situation. And he actually cursed David again and again. And he picks up rocks and he's throwing them at King David as he and his followers are traveling along. And it says that he showered David with dirt along the way. And David said, don't touch him, leave him to do it. In some ways I deserve this. How horrible. Yet to a certain extent, Shimei was right. David's own sin and weakness had contributed to the situation, especially his terrible failure with Bathsheba and his cover-up of that situation, which was murderous, which had ongoing disastrous consequences for his family. And you know what? If we're honest, in some ways, it's sometimes the same with us. Our own weakness, our own failure, our own sin contributes to the troubles of our life. Oh, that's painful. So what are you to do at such times? Just because you've blown it, is that it? It's an important question. Just because you've blown it, Christian, is that it? No. This psalm gives us all great confidence. Just because we contribute to the mess of our lives, it does not mean that God has hung up the telephone. You hear me? We only ever relate to God, our Heavenly Father, in the context of His amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. God's grace and undeserved kindness. Listen, the way you got to know God in the first place is through his unconditional love shown to you in Jesus Christ. He knows you and everything about you and all your secrets, and he still loved you. And the way we continue in the Christian life is through God's unconditional love shown to us in Jesus Christ. We don't come in on the gospel and carry on in the law. It's gospel all the way through. But a lot of us don't live like that. King's Church, Chesington. A lot of us don't live like that. 
So Christian, even if you have made a real mess of your life, God does not love you any less. You hear me? Even if you've made a real mess of your life, do you know what? God could not love you any more than he already does. He couldn't love you more. You are more wicked and sinful than you ever realized, and yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus than you ever dared to dream even now. Just look at David. All the mess that he made. And in spite of it all, he can pray verses 3 to 6. This is my third point. You can trust God with everything. Verses 3 to 6. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. You know, you really can trust him with everything. Some of us here will know predicaments like David. Betrayal. Even the intimate betrayal of a close relationship. That hurts. In some ways you can never really stop thinking about it. Some know the the pain of slander and whispering of other people talking about you. Some of us have had to endure a smear campaign. Somebody smeared your name and they ruined your reputation with a certain group of people. And it is so unjust, but you know what? You can't do anything about it. Because if you start protesting about it and trying to persuade people, it just makes them think all the more that you are guilty. So you're completely trapped. You feel absolutely shafted. Some here have experienced or are experiencing family turmoil. Oh, that hurts. Your nearest and dearest. The one place that you hope would be safe, your family. But there's turmoil. Some know the pain of loving rebellious children. You know, they say you're only as happy as your most unhappy child. It's so painful loving a rebellious child, you can't stop loving them. If you cut the nerve to pain, you cut the nerve to love, you can't stop. It's so painful. Some know threats to their livelihood because people have got it in for them. Or your welfare. And perhaps some know the threat of violence behind closed doors. Most domestic violence goes unreported. You know, you may know some of David's predicament. A scholar called Clinton McCann agrees it is a nightmare, but he says that Psalm 3 is good news for us. It shows us that the way of the righteous person is not a detour around life's troubles. It shows us the trust that God is walking with us. God is present in the depths. And precisely there, in the depths, God makes our life possible. But you have to reach out to him, friends, in trust. You have to reach out. You have to go and sit on his knee. And that's what this psalm is teaching us about prayer. Faith is active. David starts putting it into action in verses 3 and 4. He starts remembering who God is and what he's done for him. Verse 3, but you, emphatic, Lord, are a shield around me. Just as he's surrounded by enemies, he realizes that God is a shield all around him. And a shield takes 
The blows and the arrows and the swords and the cuts that were intended for you. And the shield takes it on itself. He says, you do surround me. You do, I can be confident in your protection, Lord. He says, you're my glory. You're my glory. What does that mean? I think it means you, he won't finally be put to shame. Another great psalm of somebody in the depths. Psalm 34 says this. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. The only place you're going to find glory and not shame and disgrace is in the presence of the glorious one who loves you and bids you to come to him. He restores me. He lifts my head high. He's going to take me, he's going to restore me at some point. And then verse 4, David, I think, here recalls previous history. The, the, the tense of the language behind this suggests this is him looking back. Look at verse 4. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. This is habitual. This is what God does. I call out to him, and he answers me, you know. I might not be feeling it right now, but I know this God. And I know that when I call out to him, he does answer me in his time. And the holy mountain is Mount Zion. It was a hill in Jerusalem. It wasn't really a mountain. It was a hill. And on the top of this hill was the temple. And so on Zion, whenever you hear about Zion in, in songs, Awake, Awake, O Zion, it's talking about the temple where the Jewish people knew that God made his presence dwell in a special way, a unique way. And they thought about Zion, the temple, as the, the control, the command center of the universe, the HQ, the headquarters, the throne room. God is there on Zion. He's living there in a special way. In other words, David remembers how God has come through for him in the past. And remember that whatever is happening right now, God is still on the throne. And his statements, his commands, his decrees are the only ones that count, no matter what Absalom is doing in the background. About 10 years ago, my family and I went through a financial crisis. It was really bad. There'd been some tax blunders with uh, our church, and some things had been set up that we were badly advised on, and as a result, we got a new treasurer at the church, and this treasurer phoned me up one day. I still remember where it was. I was standing on Deansgate, center of Manchester, and he said, Mike, you might want to sit down. Well, what's this? He said, I'm, I'm afraid there's been a problem and you've been underpaying tax for, for years. And I went and did the sums and I thought I could be, I could be 20,000 pounds in debt. And I had no savings. And I'll tell you what, at that moment, all my confidence just drained away. I felt physically weak. That night we were at one of our kids' schools and my daughter was performing in a, in a musical and I, couldn't, I just couldn't concentrate. I had no heart for it. I was just going over and over in my mind about what we were going to do. And I wrote to a friend and said, I, um, I wonder if you could see if there's a job for me because I'm not going to be able to carry on as a minister. And that night I couldn't sleep. I was wretched. What are we going to do? I can't pay the mortgage and all that. And I wrote to a friend of my dad's who was a, a, a man, he was a Muslim, he'd become a Christian, he'd lost his, he'd lost his family and he'd, he'd been sent, sent to London with seven pounds in his pocket, that's all he had, homeless. 
And he, God had blessed him and built him up over the years. And he wrote to me a text. I'll never forget this one simple text. Mike, remember the love of God. That's all he said. <laughs> it was like water on a, on a parched day. Remember the love of God. I didn't have a solution at that point. A solution did come. But at that point, what I needed was that word. Remember, I, of course, Lord, I remember what you've done for me in the past. I remember how you've been there for me. I remember Jesus. And I don't know how this situation is going to unfold. I really don't. I feel absolutely at the end of my resources. And no one can help me. But I do remember your love. And so reach out to him in faith. Now, the outcome of this active faith and you don't feel like doing it, but you've got to do it, go to the Lord and take your troubles to him, the outcome of it actually is, is some real benefits in mental health. Look at verse 5 and 6. This is, is good mental health. It is, is great peace of mind. Verse 5. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Now, there's a very sweet progression in verse 5 there. And those who are going through the menopause will long for this, lying down and actually sleeping and waking again. What a lovely thought that would be. You know, sleep is a great healer. It's a great blessing. And sleep comes when we're able to put our trust in God. And when we're not able to put our trust in God and we, we cannot trust him and we are consumed by thoughts of what might happen, we're deprived of sleep usually. That's what works for most of us. This comes when you are sure that God has heard you. Now, I do not want to minimize the challenges of clinical anxiety here. Please hear me. I don't want to minimize the challenges of clinical anxiety and you may need medication for things like that and some of the changes that happen in people's bodies over their lives and health issues, they may mean you can't sleep. I'm not suggesting in a reductive way that this is all easy, you just trust God and you get a great night's sleep. But we also need to accept the teaching of this psalm that there are things we can do that will help us sleep and will help us trust and will help us be less anxious. Because verse 6 even builds on that encouragement, even though the threat now seems to intensify, these tens of thousands are sailing on every side, they're all around, he can confidently face the worst. How come? Because he knows that God has heard him. Friends, do you know God is listening when you pray? Do you really know that? Is it real to your heart? He really is listening more closely than your closest friend is listening. He hears every word, every sigh, every groan. And he hears it with loving regard. He's not far away. He's right with you. You know, friends, sometimes you have to pray and pray and pray until you find peace of mind. And in the really dark hours, you probably need someone else to hold your hand. 
And the, the turning may not be instant. The dark night may seem to last forever, but the morning will come. David wakes and he says, I've woken, I slept, the Lord sustains me. The morning will come. God will reveal his commitment to you in time. He will reveal his presence with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Fusion group, if you are still with me, look at the bottom of your question there. David trusted God and brought his troubles to God. When you're upset or in trouble, who do you go to? Why is God the best person to go to when you're in trouble? Great questions, Fusion Group. So we've, we've been through our first three points, which are the longest ones. Life is full of troubles. Sometimes they your own doing. You can trust God with everything. So finally, take it all to him. Take it to him. What are we to do with all our troubles? You know, there was an old song. Some of you senior saints will remember it. Pack up your troubles in an old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. Remember that? That is not biblical advice. I mean, you pack your troubles up in an old kit bag and they're still in there. And that smile is not very genuine. Psalm 3 does not say that. Pack them up. No. It is real. It is not sugar-coated, polite prayer. Lord, how many of my foes, how many are rising up against me? Arise, Lord. Deliver me. Help is a cry of a naked soul. This is how we should pray. I wonder if you feel you have to tidy up yourself a bit before you pray. You know, you have to kind of wash your face and stop crying and, look and stop thinking horrible thoughts. And then you go and pray in a kind of prayer voice. You know, sometimes people have a prayer voice. It's different from their normal voice. It's kind of polite, religious voice. This is not like that. This is really his real voice. This is somebody who's absolutely up against it. But what about verse 7? Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Is it okay to pray, Lord, smash their teeth in? Now, a little bit about the language here. Striking someone on the jaw, or another, the Jewish translation has slapped them on the cheek, is a gesture of disrespect. And it implies that the enemies here are going to be disgraced. This isn't just, Lord, go and give them a punch in the face for me. This is, bring them to disgrace. When Will Smith at the Oscars ceremony, famously stood up because the comedian had, uh, Chris Rock had spoken a, an insulting joke against his wife's honor. Will Smith stepped forward very famously and slapped Chris Rock with an open hand around the face. And commentators said in the next few days that in the black community in America, that was a significant gesture because what it, it was a slap that showed you are worthless. It brought disrespect and disgrace upon Chris Rock. By the way, I'm not defending that gesture. I'm just explaining what's going on here. Lord, these people that have done all these things to me, slap them on the face. And what about smash the teeth? Break the teeth of the wicked. Now, David was a former shepherd. He knew all about wild animals. In fact, David had had to fight sometimes bears or, or wolves or even, I think, lions. 
to defend his flock. David knows about wild animals. And savage beasts tear with their teeth, and so do savage people. People who are tearing your reputation apart. And David is asking God to remove their power, remove their threat, so that the worst they could give you would be a nasty suck. (laughs) Another way of putting this, I think, in our South London vernacular is, Lord, shut them up. Shut them up. So, back to the question, is it ever right for a Christian to pray verse 7? Strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. And I believe the answer is, oh yes. But don't stop there. Oh yes, it is right sometimes for a Christian to pray verse 7. Let your prayers and your anguish be real. Do you ever wish that God would smash someone's face in? Do you? Be honest. Do you ever wish that God would crush someone or rip them apart? Be honest. Do you ever wish that? You don't have to answer out loud. Now, you do sometimes, I believe. You do sometimes wish that. Then why wouldn't you share that with the Lord in prayer? Don't you realize he already knows you're thinking that? You think you kind of hid that bit and the Lord doesn't know about it. No, 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 he knows all your thoughts. You're thinking, Lord, I'm suffering so much with this. I wish you would smack that person in the face. And then you go, oh, Father, please help me to forgive. You're not being real. Come on. He already knows about it. There are times when it's right to pray, verse 7. A very, very good friend of mine, a teacher of mine, a mentor of mine called David Field tells a story about a little boy and a pile of bricks. And the story goes like this. Dad's going off to work in the morning. He's getting his jacket on. And the little boy says, Dad, is there anything I can do to help you today? The boy's about four or five. And he says, well, son, there is that pile of bricks at the end of the garden. You know, I need them to be moved to the front of the, of the garden. I wonder if you could do that. Yes, Dad, I'll do that. I'll do it, Dad. So he gives him a kiss and goes to work. And the boy goes out and he starts picking up the bricks. Oh, my, it's hard work, this. Oh, he's exhausted and he's only done five bricks. And he's lifting these bricks. And then he falls over and he cuts his knee really badly. And he's covered in dirt and he's exhausted and he's really hurt. And he realizes, I'm never going to do this job. I can't, re- I can't move all the bricks. So what does he do? He runs inside to mum and sits on mum's knee, and he tells her all about it. Mum, I'm so upset. I'm trying to move these bricks for Dad, and I've messed it up. I'm really hurting. I'm really angry, actually. I feel upset. I'm, I'm failed. And the mum hopefully doesn't say, boys don't cry. Hopefully mum says, oh, darling, I'm sorry. How does it feel to feel like that? And she just holds him for a while. And that is what prayer can be like. You don't have to tidy yourself up to go before God. You go and sit on his knee. He is your heavenly father after all. You go and sit on his knee and you cry. I'm just hurting so much. I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated. I wish you'd smash their face in. And you might need to stay on that prayer for some time and be heard and be comforted. 
But don't stop there. Notice David is not asking for power to go and smash someone's face in himself. He's asking for God to bring justice. And then in verse 8, he moves to something really, really stunning. Because he moves to the gospel. Probably didn't notice it. it we just skim over verse 8. But just pause there as we, as we draw to a close. From the Lord comes deliverance or help or salvation or rescue. All translations of the same word. Rescue, salvation belongs to the Lord. He's got it in his hand. Whatever people say, a gospel confidence knows deliverance is coming. It is in God's hand. Salvation belongs to the Lord and he will come in his good time. In the evacuation of Dunkirk, the British people rose up. There was a mass exodus of small boats, holiday cruisers and other little boats, which charged across the channel, and they all picked up as many soldiers as they could carry, and they came back. And for some reason, and the historians debate why, Hitler did not move forward with his tank battalions and crush the armies. He pulled back, giving them a window. And on the days of the evacuation, the sea was marvelously calm for those small boats. They hoped to save 50,000 men. They saved over 330,000. And the army was spared to fight another day. Winston Churchill hailed it as a miracle of deliverance. And new hope came. And he stood up and proclaimed, we shall fight them on the beaches. A new day, a miracle of deliverance. But we, friends, Christian friends, we do not put our trust even in such things as armies or strategy or great heroic politicians or weather conditions. We look to another miracle of deliverance. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus Christ looked upon his enemies and he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. This final prayer of Psalm 3, may your blessing be on your people, reveals the noble heart of the true king. Like Jesus, David here intercedes on behalf of his enemies. Because may your blessing be on your people can't just be limited to David's few followers. He's praying for everyone. The whole nation is still God's people, although they've been led into a horrid revolt. From the Lord comes deliverance. It will come. May your blessing be on your people. And may God bless you as you pray like this, this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this psalm, which is so genuine and real, and we thank you that it shows us uh, how to pray, perhaps in ways we've never prayed before. And we thank you that, that salvation belongs to you. It is in your hand. Deliverance and rescue will come. And we pray for those here who feel really at the end of their rope at the moment. And we ask that you would come through for them soon and help us to support them. Amen. We're going to sing a couple of songs, one of which actually uh, is by a man who had lost his, his daughters in uh, in a boat accident and uh, the little drowned. His wife was spared. And he wrote, it is well with my soul. So as we sing that, let's remember those words of the psalm. We'll stand when the musicians begin. Thank you.